Let's pray together. Lord, would you give light, shed light upon your word today? Help us to understand this narrative from so many years ago of what was taking place. We pray that it would bring instruction to our minds and help us to live for Jesus Christ today and this week. May his power rest on us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we start a brand new sermon series, the Gospel of Luke. And I'm excited because of all the four Gospels, this is my favorite one. And it has always been my favorite one. And I'll share some reasons why that is as we go through. Um, Luke really is a unique Gospel. And there's lots of reasons why it is unique amongst the four. Number one, it's the longest of all four Gospels. Luke only has 24 chapters and Matthew has 28 chapters, but Luke is longer than Matthew. Luke has more verses and more words if you were to add them all up. So it's the most complete history of all of the four Gospels. Secondly, it's the only book in our Bible that's written by a Gentile. Think about that. That makes it unique. The only book written by a Gentile. Number three, it focuses on Jesus' ministry to the marginalized. In fact, some people have called the Gospel of Luke the Gospel of the Underdog because he emphasizes the poor and the outcasts and Gentiles. It's the only Gospel where we have the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee or the Good Samaritan or the healing of the ten lepers. Now think about it. Lepers, tax collectors, Samaritans. These are the outcasts of society. But Luke likes to showcase them and Jesus' special ministry to these kinds of people. And then number four, Luke gives special prominence to women in his gospel. In fact, women were one of those that were marginalized in the first century in that particular culture. And Luke focuses on them. There are stories about women or the mention of their names 45 different times in the gospel of Luke. Number five, Luke focuses on prayer more than any other gospel. Matthew and Mark mention Jesus praying three times each. John never mentions Jesus praying. Luke says that it mentions Jesus praying eight different times. So there's this great emphasis on prayer. And in fact, you find Jesus praying at his baptism in Luke and on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke, where the other gospels are just silent about that. So Luke wants us to see the prayer life of Jesus. That's of interest to him. Number six, more than half of the material that we find in Luke is not found in the other Gospels. So we would be much, much poorer if we didn't have this Gospel because there's so much rich material that God has given to us in this particular Gospel. The parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. These are all special, unique uh, parables. Well, at least the prodigal son is to Luke himself. And then, finally, in the book of Matthew, Matthew's emphasis is that Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the King of the Jews. Mark's emphasis is that Jesus is the servant of God. John's emphasis is that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke's emphasis is that he's the Son of Man. So, Jesus is Messiah. That's Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is servant. That's Mark's Gospel. Jesus is God. That's John's Gospel. Jesus is the perfect man. That's Luke's Gospel. 
And so he repeats the phrase, the Son of Man, all the way through the Gospel, showing us the humanity of Christ. He's not just deity, he's also human. He's also one of our race. So this is the uniqueness of this Gospel. This is how Luke presents himself. Now the key word for the Gospel of Luke, I would say, is the word save, or another word that's in that family of words like Savior or salvation. These words occur 22 times in Luke's Gospel. And the, the verse of Scripture from Luke, the key verse, I would say, is Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man, His humanity, what did He do? He came to save. He came to save that which is lost. Now, let's focus a little bit on the author for a minute. Who wrote this Gospel? Well, Luke. <laughs> okay, well, how do we know? The authorship of Luke has never really been seriously contested from the 1st century until the 18th century, or the, I should say the 19th century. And then everybody's authorship was suspect at that point because of the new so-called uh, scholarship that came in, the liberal scholarship. But we have evidence from uh, early church historians, Irenaeus, all the way back in the 2nd century, that are stating that Luke, the beloved physician, is the one who wrote this particular gospel, and he's also the one who wrote the book of Acts. And uh, it is interesting that Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. You've heard of missionary doctors? Looks like Luke is about the very first one that we know of. Luke's a missionary doctor. Traveling with Paul's apostolic band, a doctor he would be treating the band, the apostolic team, whenever they needed some treatment, or perhaps he also was involved in treating the illnesses of other people along the way. But in, aside from being a physician, he was also a very careful historian. And we're going to see that as we look at the first four verses. Now, who's he writing to? Well, he says in the first four verses, he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. I have to tell you something. I almost called our second son Theophilus. Almost dead. When he was born, I looked at him and said, Debbie, that's the awfulest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, Jonathan's actually a beautiful little baby. And if he's watching or hearing this, Jonathan, I didn't mean it. But... But Theophilus, who was that guy? Some people think that he was just sort of a code name for all Christians in the first century because uh, Theophilus means lover of God. Theophilus comes from Theos and Phileo. Theos, God, Phileo, to love. So lovers of God. The problem with that view is that he's called most excellent Theophilus. And if you do a search for that phrase in your Bible, you're going to find it four times. Three other times are in the book of Acts and they refer to specific individual people. Felix and Festus. Government officials in the first century. So I'm convinced it wasn't a code name for all Christians. This was a real particular person that he's writing to. We don't really know anything else about him. Some have speculated that he could have been Luke's master. Luke could have been a slave because oftentimes doctors were slaves in the first century. And people have speculated that uh, Theophilus came to Christ and then released his slave. And out of gratitude, Luke then was free to join Paul's apostolic band and went about compiling a gospel to help his former master be grounded in the faith. But there is really no historical basis for that. It's just speculation. All right, what's the purpose of the gospel? 
This we find the answer to this in the first four verses. He says that many had undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. No doubt Luke is thinking about Matthew and Mark's gospel. Usually scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel first, and so Luke is able to draw upon Mark's gospel. Perhaps Matthew's gospel has also been written by this time. So many, including Matthew and Luke, John's is probably written later, so his is not compiled yet. But he says many, that would probably be more than two, I would think. So there's probably many other biographies of Jesus that are circulating in the first century. Luke knows that they're not all trustworthy. And he wants to make sure that Theophilus has the facts. Something that's been carefully investigated. And so he says, since many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been accomplished among us, I thought it was wise for me as well to do the same. He says, eyewitnesses and servants of the word, that these things were handed down. Notice verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, who would these people be? Who were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word in the first century, primarily? The apostles of Jesus Christ. He's thinking about the apostles. They had handed down the facts concerning the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Luke himself is not an eyewitness. But Luke draws on eyewitness accounts to compile this biography. In fact, I believe that Luke probably interviewed Mary. Have you ever thought about how he got the information for chapters 1 and 2? Luke wasn't around. You know, where did he get all this information? Who's going to know what happened? Mary did. She was there. She experienced it. She was the, um, the cousin, I believe, or the niece to Elizabeth. Which one was it? Okay, cousin? Okay. So she knew, there, there were family members. So she would have known Elizabeth's story. She certainly knows her own story. And she could have given those facts to Luke as he interviews her. So I imagine when Luke is in Jerusalem, he's going to visit Mary, and he's going to visit any of the other apostles that are resident there in Jerusalem. He's very careful. He's taking notes. He's writing it down. And the Holy Spirit then inspires him to write it down in a book, which is compiled with the other three to form the basis for our four Gospels. He says that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. That tells us something. Luke had been taught the things of Christ. Either Luke, or I'm sorry, either Theophilus was a new Christian, or he was a very young Christian, or perhaps he wasn't a Christian at all, but he had been taught about Jesus. Luke's purpose, then, is to give him solid historical facts that he can base his life upon concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we find that Luke is a very careful, meticulous historian that wants to make sure that he gives the exact truth concerning Jesus Christ to this man, Theophilus. Now, let's talk about the structure of the first two chapters, because that's, we're going to spend probably the next eight weeks or so studying through the first two chapters of this gospel. And by the way, we're probably going to be in this gospel for about two years. When we get all done, we'll count up the sermons and find out. But that's my best guess at this point. 
Okay, so the first two chapters, how does he structure this? It's very interesting. As he goes through, he compares two individuals, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And this is the way it works. The birth of John is foretold, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. Then the birth of Jesus is foretold, chapter 1, verses 26 to 56. Then the birth of John is described, chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. Then the birth of Jesus is described, chapter 2, verses 1 to 40. So you have this going back and forth between John and Jesus. Take a look at how Jesus' birth, or excuse me, John's birth is described. Then take a look at how Jesus' birth is described. Take a look at uh, John's birth being foretold. Take a look at Jesus' birth being foretold. And right in the middle of all of that, you have these two individuals, John and Jesus, come together in the wombs of their mothers as Mary and Elizabeth greet each other. And you remember what happens... John, who's six months old, well, six months conceived, leaps in his mother's womb when he hears the greeting from Mary, knowing that his Lord is near. So you see this comparison back and forth between John and Jesus Christ. There is one great contrast, though, isn't there? John is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. There's really no comparison between John and Jesus when you come down to it. John was a creature, Jesus is the creator. John was a sinner, Jesus is the savior. And we'll see that next time. Now let's take a look at some of the comparisons, the specific comparisons that Luke draws between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Number one, the same angel. And what's the name of this angel, folks? Gabriel. The same angel appears to the father of John and to the mother of Jesus. Number two, the same angel tells both Zacharias and Mary not to be afraid. Number three, the same angel announced to both that they would have a son. And then number four, both sons are going to be conceived miraculously. Zacharias and Elizabeth are too old to have children, and Mary has never known a man, so both are supernatural, miraculous births. Number five, the angel announced what the names of both of these sons would be before they were born. He gives them that information. Number six. The angel tells both that their son is going to be great. John is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And he says about Jesus, he will be great. Not just in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of everyone. Number seven. The birth of both sons is described in detail. Number eight, the birth of both sons is attended with joy. Many will rejoice at his birth, they said of John. And the angel talks to the shepherds and says, I'm, going to bring, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Number nine, prophecies are given at the birth of both sons. John's father, Zacharias, gives a beautiful prophecy at the end of chapter one. And we find Anna and Simeon, Anna was a prophetess, and Simeon prophesies there in chapter 2 when, G- when Jesus is being circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. And then number 10, there is a one-verse description of both boys that summarize their childhood years. In fact, the, the one-verse description of John happens, it's the very last verse of chapter 1, and It's all, the description of Jesus is the very last verse of chapter 2. Let me read those to you. Here's the description of of John's boyhood. 
chapter 1, verse 80. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And then the very last verse of chapter 2 describes Jesus' boyhood years. It says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So that's hopefully an introduction that will help us come into some of the richness of this particular gospel. Now I want to focus with you for the remainder of our time on this first narrative story. It's the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And we have here, really, the two major players are Gabriel and Zacharias. And if you imagine this is uh, an act of five different scenes, we're going to see as the first scene a description of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And this is in verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now first I want you to notice the parentage of both uh, John, John's father, Zacharias, and Elizabeth. Notice that. It says in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. So he was a priest. What tribe is a priest from? Levi. So we know something very specific about his father. He was a priest of God, of the line of Aaron, because the priest had to be of the line of Aaron. We notice also the parentage of his wife, Elizabeth. It says that he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So both of them were from the priestly tribe, interestingly. They both came from the tribe of Levi. Both were descended from Aaron. Now notice their piety in verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God. Now what does that tell you? This can either be talking about righteousness imputed or righteousness imparted. It can either be talking about justification or sanctification. I believe it's talking about justification. I believe it's saying that they were righteous in the sight of God because he had declared them righteous. They were Old Testament saints. They were true converts. These were true believers. Justified. Declared righteous by God. And as a result of that, it says walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So these two folks, this elderly couple, it's a beautiful description of this godly elderly couple who are justified by God through their faith in Him, but then as a result of their justified state, they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They loved the Lord. They were seeking to please the Lord. And for an Old Testament saint, how did you go about pleasing the Lord? Well, you sought to keep His law. That was the way that these saints could please the Lord. They could walk in all His statutes and His ordinances and His commandments. And so they sought to obey Him in every detail. And it says they were walking blamelessly. Of course, that doesn't mean they were sinlessly perfect, but it means that they were holy men and women. Of course, they had failures like everybody else. In fact, we're going to read about Zacharias' failure in just a minute. He didn't believe the word of God when God sent it through an angel. 
wasn't a perfect man, but he was a holy man. And he was a justified man. So we've seen their parentage and their, their piety. What about verse 7? Their plight, their, their problem. Verse 7 says, but they had no child. Now that was a big deal, especially for a woman in first century Israel. They would look at it as a curse. In fact, people would think that woman must be cursed not to be able to have a child. It was that important for a woman in first century Judaism to have a child. They looked at it as a disgrace. In fact, we're going to see later in verse 25, Kelly already read it, that she said, the Lord has taken away my disgrace among men when she had a child. So she felt disgraced. She felt like perhaps this was some kind of a curse on her. But the interesting thing is they're commended so highly and yet they suffered so greatly. It was said in the first century that it, it could be legal grounds for divorce if a woman wouldn't bear her husband a child. So a serious, serious issue causing deep pain of soul to any woman, but I'm sure also to Zacharias. He wanted a son to carry on the family name. What this teaches me is that holiness is not directly linked to our happiness in this life, or freedom from trial, or freedom from suffering. You can be a very, very holy man or woman and go through deep, deep trials and suffering. God may have ordained those trials and suffering for the holiest of His children. And in fact, God makes us holy through suffering. So it's no surprise that holy men of God pass through those times. So here we're introduced to this beautiful couple of the Lion of Aaron, justified, righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly, loving the Lord, but having this deep trial that they're facing, not having any children, being barren. And here they're advanced in age and they figure it's just long gone. Their opportunity to have a son is over. They're just going to have to live with that great disappointment. Now, the scene changes. The scene changes from a description of uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth to the appearance of the angel to Zacharias. Let's look at that one. When does this happen? Well, we find that it says, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. That's in verse 8. That's when this uh, angel appeared to Zacharias. Now, we need to understand what's happening here. In the days of King David... He had divided all of the priests into 24 courses or divisions. And at the time that Luke is writing his gospel, there were about 18,000 priests. So you've got 18,000 priests divided up into 24 courses. All these priests can't be serving at the same time. They're going to be stumbling all over each other. They can't all fit in the temple. You know, there's just way too many. So what happened is that they would allow each of the priests to serve in the temple two weeks out of the year. So this is Zacharias' big week. He gets to serve in the temple. And not only that, but we find in verse 9, it says he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So it's, it's his turn. He's one of the few who gets to serve in the temple. And they would cast lots to see who got to do the various functions within the temple. And this was a very rare occasion that someone would get that high privilege of going into the temple itself and burning incense before the Lord. And the lot fell 
to Zacharias. Can you imagine his excitement? You know, once in a lifetime experience, he gets to go into the temple and burn incense before the Lord. So that's when it's taking place. Now, where does it take place? Well, we find in verse 9 that it's in the temple. And we find in verse 11 that the angel appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now, you remember that just as in the tabernacle, the same was true in the temple. You had these various pieces of furniture. You had the um, table of showbread on one side. And on this table, you had 12 different loaves of bread that were made every day and fresh, freshly put on the table, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. On the other side, you had the um, golden lampstand with the seven candlesticks coming up. But straight ahead of you, where the curtain ends, and beyond that curtain is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where priests ordinarily, they just can't go in there. Only one priest, the high priest, can go in once a year. So this is about as close as any human being who wasn't the high priest could ever get to the Holy of Holies. There is the altar of incense, the golden altar of incense. And so the priest's job was to take coals, hot coals, from the brazen altar outside and put them in this bowl and carry them into the temple proper and then they would burn incense on top of those coals before that altar. Now, incense in the Bible represents what? You guys know? Prayer. And it's interesting that in verse 10, it says the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and verse 8, it talks about the 24 elders having bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And it's a fitting symbol because when you burn incense, what happens? What's the smell like? It's a fragrant, sweet smell. I mean, if you like that smell. It's not exactly perfume, but it is a sweet smell. And, and I, I can just imagine the Lord, as that incense is rising up to the heavens and the Lord is taking it in, just being pleased with the prayers of His people. A sweet-smelling savor to the Lord as His people intercede for others. So here we've got this incense being offered. The people outside are praying. It represents prayer. And then we have the third scene of this, this whole drama being acted out, and that is the actual message the appearance of this angel to Zacharias and the message that he gives. We find his message beginning in verse 12. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. I want you to notice this very carefully. Your petition has been heard. What petition? Zacharias and Elizabeth were advanced in years, at least in their 60s, perhaps their 70s or 80s. Long ago, they had given up any hope of ever having a son. When do you suppose they were offering this petition? Probably in their younger years of marriage. And they probably prayed it over and over and over. Every year, Asking again, God, would you be gracious and give us a child? And finally, they just gave up hope. I'm sure that they had stopped praying by this time because when the angel tells John he's going to have a son, what does he do? He doesn't believe it. (laughs) So 
what this tells me is that the, the, the angel said, the Lord has heard your petition. You know, folks, I'm sure there are many prayers that we pray. And the answer is not necessarily no, even though we haven't received it. The answer very well could be, wait. It's coming, but not yet. Hold on. Wait. Be patient. The time will come, and it'll be in God's timing, not ours. That's the hard part. We, we want it on our timing, don't we? We want it now. But the Lord knows best. And so the Lord graciously waits until the proper time, six months before the Messiah would come into the world. That's the right time for him to be born. God has all things planned according to his sovereign and omniscient and all-wise plan. And so he just allows Zacharias and Elizabeth to go through this difficult, difficult time of turmoil because he knows it's not the right time yet. So folks, we might be suffering, not because God is angry with us, but because God is too wise to let us have what we ask for at the time we ask for it. It's not the right time yet. And God being all wise is saying, just wait, be patient. I will do my good purposes and that, and that right time. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor. Now, let's stop there and and comment on that for a little bit. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. I don't think John was necessarily all that great in the sight of the opinion of most people. In fact, John was a crazy-looking guy, crazy-acting guy. I mean, if you saw him, you say, that, I, there's something wrong with him. He's a recluse. He lives by himself out in the wilderness, out in the deserts. He's not a very social person. He dresses in camel's hair and a leather belt. And he eats grasshoppers and wild honey. And all he ever talks about is God. I mean, this guy's a little bit off his rocker. He's, he's crazy. He's a little, he's a, I don't know about him. But in, fact, in spite of the fact that the world didn't necessarily look up to him with their great worldly opinion, God did. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And there are two reasons given for his greatness. Number one, there's a human element. He will drink no wine or liquor. Number two, there's a divine element. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, Nazarites would take a vow. If you wanted to consecrate yourself especially to God for a period of time, you would take a Nazarite vow. And if you were to take that vow, you would abstain from any of the fruit of the grape, including wine, of course, any strong liquor. You would also refuse to cut your hair until that vow was over with. Well, the Bible doesn't say that he's taking a Nazarite vow, but... For his entire life, he's going to abstain from wine or strong liquor. And it seems to me what we have described here is someone who is just so caught up with his zeal and his passion and his love for God and his glory that he's willing to abstain from the worldly pleasures. He's willing just to set them aside because he's got bigger and better things to think about, bigger and better things to pursue. And so that's John. He just consecrates himself for his entire life, putting aside these... There's nothing necessarily wrong in enjoying wine or strong liquor in moderation, 
But John set that aside because he wanted to seek God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wanted nothing to divert him from that. And then the divine element, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, think about that meeting between the mother, the pregnant mother of Jesus, and the pregnant mother of John. They come together, and it says that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the baby leaps. Could it be that that's what was talked about here, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? That when Mary is filled with the Spirit, John simultaneously is filled with the Spirit and he leaps because he senses his Savior is close at hand. And there's this worship that goes out from this little unborn baby towards his Lord. Interesting, though, that it is possible for even an unborn child to be filled with the Holy Spirit. John gives us an example of that. So that puts, that gives us hope for any child, any infant, even unborn infants, that God can save anyone that He desires to save. We see that from this particular example. And then notice, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Now, What does it mean when it talks about turning someone back to the Lord? What's happening? Repentance. To turn from sin, to turn back to God. He's talking about conversion. He's saying, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to God. In other words, John is going to be instrumental in the conversion of a great multitude of people. And we know that's true because when you read the Gospel accounts, it says all Judea was going out to him. They were flocking out to hear this crazy-looking man with a message about the Messiah about to break upon the earth. And he was instrumental in turning these ones, not to himself, but to the one that he was announcing, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. He was simply a forerunner, paving the way, leveling the mountains and lifting up the low places to make straight the way of the Lord. And he was pointing people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's why he was great. He was great because he completely consecrated his life to the service of God because the Spirit of God filled him and he spent his entire life turning people away from himself to Jesus Christ and a great multitude were converted through him. Now what is interesting to me is that in this passage you have a reference back to Malachi chapter 4 the last two verses of the Old Testament. Remember that since Malachi has been written God has not spoken for 400 years. There have not been any angelic visitations. No prophets have arisen. The silent years, 400 of them. Now, let me read to you Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I'm going to send you Elijah. He's going to restore people to the Lord. Fathers to children, children to parents, and all of them to the Lord their God. This is the last announcement before God went silent for 400 years. And when God breaks the silence 400 years later, what does he talk about? The exact same scripture. (laughs) It's like there's no time with God. I stop here, okay, 400 years, I'm going to pick up where I left off. And then he talks to uh, 
Zacharias, and he says, your son is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he's going to fulfill the promise back in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. If you can receive it, Jesus said, he is Elijah who was to come. He came in, not literally Elijah. Remember when they went out to him and said, are you Elijah? Remember what, they, what he said? He said, no, I'm not. Well, he wasn't literally Elijah, but he was the fulfillment of the prophecy. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was a prophet like Elijah. He was a bold, fearless prophet. And so he would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Now, third scene. The response of Zacharias to the angel's message. How does Zacharias respond to this glorious message that he's going to have a son? His son will be named John. He's going to drink no wine or liquor. He's going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to turn multitudes back to the Lord their God. How does he respond? How will I know this for certain? For I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. Now at first glance... His response looks a lot like Mary's response. We'll see that next week. She said, how can these things be? When the angel comes to both of them, both of them ask a question. But there's a big difference between the two because Zacharias is struck with muteness and deafness and Mary gets her question answered. There's no judgment on Mary, so there must be something signally different between the two responses. We, we do know that Zacharias' response was a response of unbelief. Because, uh, in verse 20, the angel says, Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So it was a response of unbelief. The New Living Translation puts it this way, How can I be sure this will happen? See, he doesn't believe it. He's questioning it. He's basically asking for proof. Give me a sign so that I can know for sure this is going to happen. Guess what? God does give him a sign, but it wasn't the kind of sign he wanted. (laughs) The sign was his inability to speak for nine months and his inability to hear for the same period of time. That was the sign. So he responds to the Lord in unbelief. Mary responds not in unbelief, but in faith. She just needs some explanation. She doesn't understand. So she asks a question of clarification. Please tell me how these things will be. It's not that I want you to give me a sign to prove it. I believe it. I just would like to understand it. That's the difference between the two. He says, For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This is the reason for his unbelief. Who's he looking at? Himself. Lord, I'm old. My wife advanced in years. He's looking at himself rather than on God who can do anything. And that's the reason why he didn't believe the promise. Do you remember that time when Jesus comes to the disciples walking on water? And Peter says, Lord, if that's you, bid me come to you. And the Lord says, come. And so Peter steps out of the boat and he actually does walk on the water while he's keeping his eyes on Jesus. But then the text says that the winds stir up and the waves and he takes his eye off, off of Jesus and he focuses them on the wind and the waves and he starts to sink. And I think that story is given to us in the Gospels to show us that if we take our eyes off of God, 
and His Word and focus them on our inability and our impotence and our lack, we're always going to fail. We're always going to disbelieve. But if we can keep our eyes solely fixed on God and the truth of His Word, we can do whatever He calls us to do. We can do miraculous things. We can do supernatural things if we keep our eyes fixed on Him. So there we have the response of Zacharias to the angel. Now let's look at the judgment of God on Zacharias for his unbelief. The judgment of God. The reason for the judgment, first of all. Verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. As though to say, you don't know who you're looking at, buddy. (laughs) I am Gabriel. Now there are I am sure millions of angels. When you read in the book of Revelation chapter 5, it talks about myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Well, thousands of thousands, that's a million. There's myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. There's got to be many, many millions of angels. There are only two in the whole Bible that are ever given a name. Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel says, I'm one of the two angels in the entire Bible that is ever named. I am Gabriel. Now, Michael was like a super angel. Whenever there's strong fighting or battles that have to be fought, Michael's in on those. But Gabriel seems to have been given the responsibility of the details concerning the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. 500 years earlier, it was Gabriel who came to Daniel and gave him this prophecy of the 70 weeks. He said, in seven weeks and 62 weeks... The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem shall go forth, and from that time, it's going to be 69 weeks of years until Messiah the Prince shall come. In other words, 483 years. So what he's doing there is laying down a timeline for when the Messiah would come into the world. So Gabriel is especially interested in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and when it's going to take place. And he's an interesting guy because it's been 500 years and he shows up just as fresh and young and full of vigor as ever. You know, never changes. Want to be, want to be neat when we get to heaven and we never grow old. There's no signs of aging. You know, we, we have all the strength that we did when we were 16 and we're 974 or whatever. <laughs> anyway, Gabriel appears and he says, I am Gabriel. One of the two archangels mentioned. And he says, I stand in the presence of God. Imagine that. I have just been dispatched from the very presence of God, the throne room itself. And I've told you what he told me to tell you, and you don't believe it? Judgment is coming. Discipline. Chastisement must be meted out for this lack of faith. Secondly, he says... And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. He wasn't sent to bring him some miserable news of God's wrath and judgment. This was good news. This was about a petition that he had prayed over and over years before. Hey, I'm Gabriel, and I came to announce to you that your prayers have been answered, and this is the way you respond? Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. I believe he was also deaf, because in verse 62, when the baby is finally born, and all of the people say, you should call him Zacharias, his mother said, no, I think we should call him John. 
they said to him, they said to Zacharias, what should we call him? He wrote out on a slate. It says they were making signs to him. What should we call your son? They didn't just ask him the question. They wrote it out and showed it to him. What should we call your son? Evidently, he could not hear any longer. So for nine months, he's lost his ability to speak, which would have been a sore trial. I mean, here he's got the most exciting news, and he can't tell a soul. He can write it out for his wife, but basically he, he can't tell this great news that God has just given to him. And he's deaf. He's no longer hearing the voices of people in the world, but what would that do? That's going to shut him away from all of the voices of this world for nine months to begin to hear from God, to commune with God, and to fellowship with God. See, there's a purpose in this judgment. God wants to separate him to himself. And you know that he, at the end of this nine months, he's repented and believed because he said, his name is John. He says, just as the angel said, that's what we declare. His name shall be John. So you shall be silent and unable to speak for this period of time. This was the judgment. Now finally, the fulfillment of God's promise. Verse 24 and 25. We find in verse 24, After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. The promise of the Lord was fulfilled in spite of Zacharias' unbelief. Aren't you glad that our unbelief or our sin does not stop God from accomplishing what He has purposed to do? If God's purposes were dependent upon me, my sinlessly, flawlessly following Him and believing Him, He wouldn't get anything done. (laughs) I'm glad that the Lord is able to overrule the failures and the sins of man and still accomplish His big picture. Get that done. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Why for five months? Well, imagine. She, just like her husband, has been praying for years. She wanted a a child desperately. She has one. What's she going to want to do? She's going to want to tell everybody, right? She's going to want go to her relatives and all of her friends and tell them, hey, I've had a baby. Well, I'm sorry, I'm getting it mixed up. I'm, I'm going ahead of myself. She's going to want to tell them she's pregnant and she's going to have a baby. And what are they going to think about her? She's crazy. She's out of her mind. You, a 70-year-old woman, are going to have a baby. I think something's wrong here. <laughs> So she waits until she starts to show and it becomes absolutely evident and apparent that yes, she is pregnant and now she can share her news. She comes out of seclusion. She shares with her friends and relatives that God has been gracious to her. In fact, verse 25 says, this is what she said, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, What I want to point out to you is there is five links in a chain that I see here. We have barrenness, promise, unbelief, judgment, fulfillment. Do you see those? Barrenness, promise, unbelief, judgment, fulfillment. And I think probably all of us are at one of those five links or those stages this morning. Barrenness. They they were barren. 
They were unfruitful. They couldn't have a child. And, you know, we're a lot like Zacharias. If you're a Christian, you're a lot like him. He was a saved man. He was a justified man. He loved the Lord. Wanted to please the Lord. Sought to please the Lord. But yet he wasn't a perfect man. He failed. He didn't believe the word that came to him. And he was barren. At one point, he was barren. And sometimes that's the way we feel, don't we? We feel barren spiritually. We feel like we're just not producing the fruit that we ought to be producing in our lives. Sometimes we go through these times of spiritual wilderness, sort of a slump in our spiritual life where God seems distant from us. We still trust Him. We're still saved. We still believe. But yet we're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our life the way we want to. Maybe you're there this morning. Take heart. God will bring you through that time. God will make you fruitful. Because the second stage is that of promise. God sends the angel with a promise. You will have a son. And if you're feeling barren, you need to grasp the promise this morning. And there's dozens of these promises that you can go to in the Word. I want to read to you three. I want to read to you three different promises. The first one is Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now there's a promise. Has God begun a good work in you? He will. It's not a maybe or a probably. He will perfect that work in you until the day of Christ Jesus. Or another beautiful one is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it comes. Faithful is he who calls you. He also will bring it to pass. He'll do it. Or here's another beautiful one. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you have been barren and you're hearing those promises and you're believing those promises this morning, be careful. You're at a juncture. You're where Zacharias was. If you disbelieve those promises, you may have to face some chastisement. But if you'll believe them, you can walk in victory and produce fruitfulness in your life. Third stage, unbelief. And this is where we end up too often, don't we? We, just, we can believe these promises for everybody else, but when it comes to me, I just can't believe they're true. I just have such a hard time believing that God can really do that in my life right now, give me victory over this sin, can take away this shame, can give me confidence in this area. And so unbelief comes in. Now, Zacharias was saved. And did you know that Christians can go through periods of doubt about various things? Christians are not perfect. Christians struggle. In fact, I I can remember people from our church back in Milpitas 
uh, one fellow in particular who went through a severe trial. Now, I w- I'm convinced that he was saved. He was a genuine Christian. But for months, he went through this deep, dark valley where he had these doubts and he was working through them and we were trying to help him. And he came out victorious after this period of time. But, but we shouldn't say, well, that person certainly is not a Christian if, if they ever doubt. That's just not true. Christians struggle like everybody else. Christians struggle with faith, and sometimes we struggle with particular sins that we're trying to overcome. He goes through this period of time in a spiritual slump. If you are in that particular place, a place where you're seeing failure or or sin or unbelief, turn your eyes away from yourself and turn them on God. Put them on the Lord and His Word. Take all of your effort and your diligence and focus every ounce of effort you've got. Put your focus on Christ because that's where the fruitfulness and that's where the answer is going to come. And then the fourth link, judgment. The Lord takes Zacharias out to the woodshed, so to speak. Gives him a good spanking. He says, you've got to learn a lesson from this. I'm going to teach you something. I want you to believe my word. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I came to speak you good news. You didn't believe it. This is what's going to happen to you. So he's deaf, but he can hear the voice of God. He's mute, but he can still talk to the Lord. So the Lord is doing this wonderful thing in his life, really, even though it must have been painful for him. The Lord is doing a beautiful work right now. And maybe you feel like this is where you're at right now. Maybe you're at a place where you sense God's fatherly displeasure chastising you and disciplining you because you haven't been obedient in a particular area and the Lord's spanking you. Hold on. God will bring you through that. God will bring you to the other side, just as he does with Zacharias. And then the last link in the chain is fulfillment. God's promise is fulfilled. And what does Elizabeth do? She gives glory to God and she praises the Lord and she rejoices that her disgrace has been taken away among men. If this is the place you're at this morning, where you're seeing victory over sin, and victory over your flesh, answers to prayer, you see spiritual fruit in the Lord working in your life, then give God the glory for that. The Lord is fulfilling His promise to you. He's bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. He has filled you with the Spirit, just like He filled John the Baptist, and He's bringing forth the issues of that filling of the Spirit. So folks, wherever you're at this morning, whether it's barrenness, promise, unbelief, judgment, or fulfillment, my counsel, my exhortation to you is, get your eyes off of yourself. That's a place of death. That's a place of depression. It's a place of sinking down, of drifting further from God. Lift up your eyes. Remember that great story in the Old Testament about the, the brazen serpent on the pole, the bronze serpent? If they were bitten, and if they were, if they certainly would die if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. The, the counsel was, lift up your eyes and fix your eyes on that bronze snake. And if you'll do that, you'll live. And that is the answer to our problems. We're fallen, aren't we? We all have the same dreadful condition. We're fallen in Adam. All of humanity is that way. The only solution is to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. The old prophet said, Turn, turn to me and live. 
And that's what God is calling us to do. Whether you're lost and you're still not saved, or whether you're His child, the answer is the same for all of us. Turn to Christ. Put your gaze on Him, and He will lift you out. He'll make you fruitful. He'll fill you with His Spirit, and He'll provide victory over sin in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this beautiful narrative story and the richness of the application for our lives that we find in it. And Lord, I am unable of myself to be able to apply to each person, but Your Spirit is able. And I ask now that he would do that work of application in the hearts of each one. Draw us close to Jesus, turn our eyes away from our own lack and inability and weakness, and please put our gaze on the one who can change everything. May we have strong faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.